0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. Before we get to our conversation today with April Drew, quick notice about our new website, ChinaAfricaProject.com. We also have started our brand new daily email newsletter subscription. It is absolutely fantastic. I cannot recommend it enough. Well, I can't recommend it enough because I'm doing it every day, four to five hours to put this thing together but it is just chock full of great information on all aspects of the China-Africa relationship. If you'd like to sign up, head over to our website at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. We'd love to have you as part of this great new community. Okay, on to our show today. We're going to be picking up a conversation that we started back in July when we met with Christopher Rhodes, who's a lecturer at Boston University, And he talked about how religion is making its way into the Chinese migrant community from East African evangelicals. And what's happening is that Chinese are then returning back to China, back home, and bringing that religion with them. And so it's very interesting then, fast forward all the way to this past weekend, when uh, the South China Morning Post ran a really amazing article about uh, how in Kenya, Chinese arrivals are targeted by Jehovah's Witnesses. And so it's picking up on the same idea of all the Belt and Road Chinese workers who are in places like Kenya, in Uganda and Tanzania, who are starting to run into religion. That article was written by April Ju who is a freelance journalist based in Nairobi. She's been there for five years, and her writing focuses on women's rights, urban development, land issues, and what's great about what she's doing is she's writing about the China-Africa, China-Kenya relationship very much from the margins, and that's a part of the discussion that we don't ordinarily hear much about. We're going to find out what that means in writing from the margins. She joins us from Beijing, where she is there for a few months suffering miserably, doing... An intensive Chinese course, and so we're very, very excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for taking time away from all that character memorization, uh, and we really appreciate your uh, you joining us.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: So, you wrote this article about Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, A lot of people may not even know. Uh, who Jehovah's Witnesses are. There's 8 million people around the world who believe in this faith. Uh, tell us a little bit about the story that you told in the South China Morning Post Sunday Magazine, and also why are Jehovah's Witnesses the focal point of it?
1: So this story actually began with a rumor I had heard uh, through a, a journalist or someone else that there were these groups of missionaries uh, Chinese missionaries who were following in the shadow of the Chinese diaspora in Kenya, Um, specifically that they were uh, following in the footsteps of these uh, sort of uh, migrant construction camps um, and sort of just going around Kenya and targeting these Chinese migrants who had Not really been exposed to the gospel back at home, but would be able to in Kenya where religious freedom is a lot more, uh, where there is a lot more religious freedom. Um, And so I followed this path, and this eventually led me to find a group of Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, I should say, of course, among Chinese churches, Chinese Christians, uh, missionaries targeting Chinese people. There is an incredible diversity in Kenya of all of that. Um, and Jehovah's Witnesses are just one part of that. But as with, I think, anyone who's been, uh, who's encountered a witness anywhere else in the world, Jehovah's Witnesses tend to be uh, more public in their uh Evangelizing, whether that's standing at street corners or um, going to uh, apartment doors and knocking from house to house. Uh, so Jehovah's Witnesses ended up being kind of the most uh, the most interesting group to look at because of the way of the images that sort of came out from these uh, from their outreach. So, for example. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses standing by uh, carts filled with tracks outside of the Chinatown in Hurlingham in Nairobi, or going to Maimayu, where there's a uh, the Rift Valley escarpment and sort of also standing there with their cart and targeting busloads of Chinese tourists. Or, um, as I was told, even going to Ten, which is the Famed uh, training grounds for Kenya's marathoners, where there are have been a lot of Chinese uh, athletes who have gone there. And so this this image of uh, of missionaries, who, as I'll go into later on, are not only uh, are of you know many different nationalities. This idea of missionaries following in the shadow of the diaspora and sort of creating this interesting map, uh, a spiritual map of Kenya. In the, in the footsteps of Chinese migrants was incredibly interesting to me.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, just before we get into the Chinese side, just one last question on the Jehovah Witnesses. Just for those, including myself, who are not very familiar with their particular belief set, can you just give us a very broad overview of what makes that, what, what, what shapes their, their worldview? And, and again, I'm gonna try and get to how and why is this appealing to a Chinese migrant community?
1: So in terms of theology, there is a lot to be said that I probably am not <laughs> uh, qualified to talk about. Um, in short, they consider themselves a sect of Christianity, although I think it's contended uh, other Christians have uh, categories categorize them as cults um, and the theology of that I feel like is not something that I focused on at all in the piece. Um, they do use a version of the Bible that is quite close to the ones used by many other uh, many other Christians um, but it is a it importantly does not translate the name of Jehovah into the Lord or uh, God or anything else. Um, there are also a lot of uh, yeah, there are some other aspects of the Armageddon, which are more, um, which is the the final uh, end times, uh, sequence of events and sort of things around that that are specific to Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, but I think what is more relevant to this piece is the organization of Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, it is an incredibly organized uh, international, um, I don't know whether you want to call it a religion mm. or an organization or a group. Um, as I, I think we can go into later, it is banned in China, I think, because of the uh, organizing potential of it. Um, the well, all engaged, religions
0: that are not approved by the Communist Party are banned in China. That's right. not necessarily distinctive yes. to the Jehovah Witness there. No?
1: Yes, that's a good point. Um, but I think the extent to which it connects the way in which uh, capital, uh, people, and um, honestly, even just like literary, like literature, the ways in which it is, those are able to move throughout the world through Jehovah's Witnesses is, I think, something that does set it apart. Of course, totally separate from theology, but just as an organization. Yeah. Um. And so I think that is why you um, tend to why it just tends to be more public and more obvious in Kenya, um, especially when it comes to Chinese uh, churches, Chinese ministers, there is definitely a looming threat of uh, of persecution, sort of the long shadow of the CCP in Kenya. Um, so they have been, they've tended to be more uh, under the surface of the water, just sort of focused on community and not as, focused on public outreach as Jehovah's Witnesses who do also have the protection of a larger uh, international body around mm-hmm. them. So the Nairobi branch, for example, has a pretty uh, well-resourced, well-staffed legal department, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it is, uh, yeah, I think it makes a difference to look at to study the uh, the evangelism of an organization that is much more uh, oriented towards outreach, uh, resourced to encourage outreach, and sort of uh, yeah, it has the it has the wherewithal to equip its members with that kind of uh, yeah, with the literature, with
0: the training, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Interesting. So, let, okay, so that's the the Jehovah's Witness side. Let's talk about the Chinese side. And the thing that I didn't really get a sense from your article, and I'd like to see if you can expand on it, is who exactly are these Chinese that are there? So because you talked about Chinese migrant workers, and I wasn't – are these the, the bottom of the pyramid workers? Are they – because most of those, I would assume, those people live in dormitories on construction sites and whatnot, and so don't have a lot of opportunities to interact with, with local people, whoever they are. So can you tell us a little bit more about the profile of the Chinese community that was interacting with evangelical Jehovah's Witnesses?
1: Absolutely. And that's a really good question, because I think there is this tendency to, when we think about Chinese migrants in Africa, um, automate to those construction workers that, you know, there's that photograph in the like a photographic trope of, you know, the uh, African construction worker and the Chinese construction worker. And they're somewhere out there with like red dirt and blue sky. And like, that is one of the situations, but especially in Nairobi, um, where there is a a booming uh, tech sector, you have a lot of young professionals, um, you know, you have Huawei, you have startups, you have a whole people coming, uh, you know, with their families, uh, medicine. There is an entire range, not only of um, regionally diverse people, but especially by class. And so the differences in situations are going to be very significant, depending on whether you're talking about a person like Anne. the individual that I uh, opened the story with. She's a young professional who sort of in and out of Nairobi but moved there permanently and the way that she was reached out to by witnesses was kind of the way that any suburbanite in America recognizes which is that you get a ring on the doorbell and then you open the door and you see two you know um neatly dressed people outside um and it's going to be completely different than you know the situation of uh Another, uh, witness that I mentioned, Charles Utieno, who lives in Karubangi, a lower income part of Nairobi on the East side. And he literally goes up to the gate of a Chinese hydro plant and starts sharing the gospel with workers there who are obviously like, um, you know, working class people. And so it's important to keep in mind the, uh, the, yeah, the diversity of experiences and to, uh, I think, to lean into the complicatedness of it all.
0: Yeah, Charles, is interesting you brought him up and I found him to be a fascinating character in your story. Uh, Charles Otieno uh, is is one of the, the, the evangelicals, as you said, going up to the fence and talking to uh, Chinese workers. He speaks fluent Mandarin. And it's interesting that this yeah. is another offshoot of the China-Africa relationship we don't really hear about, which is we always hear about young Africans learning Mandarin because they want to get jobs either with a Chinese state-owned enterprise or with a company or with Huawei or something like that. And we don't think that there are religious or cultural reasons to employ Mandarin. And so tell us a little bit about Charles and what his background was and what you know about him.
1: Yeah. And on the note of complication that I just left on, I think it's important to also, yeah, complicate the way in which we look at this phenomenon of uh, of, of Kenyans, of Africans learning Mandarin, because I think Charles, he's definitely uh, an exception, uh, but his story is so, is, is so um, I would say, yeah, beautiful. It was certainly, uh, it certainly drew me in. And so Charles Otieno is Kenyan. Um, he was born in Kenya, but he has sort of this um, vague past, vague in that he shies away from speaking much about it, but it's pretty clear from his accent that he didn't spend a lot of time in in Kenya, sort of moved around the continent with his parents, um, spent a lot of time in Zambia, and he is fluent, as I mentioned in the piece, in at least five languages, Uh, but he sort of doesn't really, uh, you get the sense that he doesn't really feel at home in any of them, and you sort of just... Yeah, you can hear traces of other languages in everyone that he speaks. But he speaks Mandarin and he speaks it well. Um, And so I, after speaking to him, learned that he had actually spent a few years uh, in Zhengzhou in Henan. Um, And even though he never brought this up outright, it just slowly came up that he was... Training um, in Kung Fu at in Wushu at the Shaolin Temple, the famed Shaolin Temple. And he showed me these photographs of him uh, in just, yeah, incredible, you know, everything uh, spears, this balance, this, you know, everything that comes to mind when you think of uh, Wushu at Shaolin. Um, and he learns Mandarin there and comes back to Kenya eventually. and Uh, basically to cut the story short he uh, becomes a jehovah's witness and renounces his past life as a wushu practitioner um he no longer practices he no longer teaches um but he has sort of but it is completely uh separate from his uh i don't know this sort of like um longing and loving way in which he still thinks about China um, and about the Chinese language. I asked him how he learned Mandarin um, and actually he reads only in traditional uh, traditional characters which is uh, incredibly difficult already, but he told me that he had never taken a single formal lesson in his life. He goes through the Bible in Chinese um, he goes through Watchtower, this Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, the Umbrella Organization. He goes over the literature in Chinese and just goes character by character and looks up anyone that he doesn't know. And so, I mean, that's this is incredible.
0: Motivated. I mean, just yeah. that by itself is absolutely it is. incredible.
1: It is. Yeah. And it is not motivated as like you mentioned by any kind of economic gain. Um, he is a pioneer, which means that he dedicates at least seventy hours a month to preaching to outreach in some form or another. And yeah, this is a um, it is a complication to that uh, simplified narrative. And does he have a
0: job out? Mandarin. Does he have a job outside mm-hmm. of what he does for Jehovah's Witnesses? Is that how he f- f- you know pays rent and feeds himself, or mm-hmm. does does it's being a- an
1: interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Because as a witness, speaking to witnesses, you really get a sense that their the job that they make their living off of uh, is like, it's just details. Like they do something to make ends meet. And then, but the, like what they pour most of their time into is preaching. And so he told me, he was vague about it as with many other things, but he he says he has like a a day job, but the majority of the time um, we would only meet on Mondays because all the six other days of the week, he had just like carved out dedicated to doing his work. And so it's very hard to be, well, it was hard for me personally to be uh cynical about it. I'm honestly admired him. I think that kind of uh, sincerity, that kind of um, relationship to to a nation to a people to a language that doesn't with that doesn't exist within market forces as we often imagine people's relationship to Mandarin to be that was very uh, eye-opening for me.
0: What's the context that a guy like Charles is operating within and, and I guess, You know, somebody who's lived in China for a very long time, it's a very, China is known as a low trust society. That is that person A and person B don't like each other, don't trust each other. And you see this in the subway when people come up, people are very distrustful. They're like, you know, keep your distance. I don't know who you are. And so you go to Kenya and you have this wide range of people who are working there who don't necessarily speak the language, understand the culture. And a Kenyan man, a black man, an African comes up and starts talking to them. Regardless of the fact that it's in Chinese, mm-hmm. it just surprises me that they would even be open to the conversation when we see in China itself how people are very distrustful of foreigners or people outside their clan or their tribe or wherever, you know, their group. So, what's mm-hmm. the how does that happen that that initial conversation when he would go up to the fence because I could imagine also that the, you know, the plant manager, the the, the project foreman would be like, "Go away. Whatever you're trying to do here mm-hmm. is not helpful." And so it just seems, it's hard for me to picture all those pieces coming together to complete a conversion to something as exotic for a Chinese person as becoming a Jehovah's Witness.
1: Yeah, that's a really good observation. And I think I'd begin with a chart that I cannot remember where the source was, but it mapped out the highest trust societies in the world, the lowest trust societies in the world, and lo and behold... Kenya is right there at the bottom with China.
0: Oh, Kenya is also a low trust society. Interesting. Wow. <laughs>
1: yeah, apparently so. I have to go back and and find that to to verify. But I do remember looking at that and just uh, thinking that was hilarious. But what you bring up is very interesting, and I think to uh, again, there is no generalization. And I'll go. I'll use Otieno as a, an example again because what happened was um, he went to this hydro plant uh, and was speaking with the workers there in Chinese. And uh, again, these were working class uh, laborers from China um, with, you know, probably very strong regional accents. Like they were, uh, a lot of them were very much open to what he was saying. And he mentioned that there was one man in particular who uh, really began asking him the good questions, like, you know, why does Jehovah allow for suffering, blah, 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 what is this? And and he did go back um, regularly for some time. Uh, and then there was one time when he went back and all the laborers had just changed. No one made eye contact with him. No one spoke with him. Uh, they just sort of ignored him. And then their foreman, who is, uh, who is also Chinese, um, came to him and it was clear that you know, he had spoken to his workers and he was like, you know, I know you're doing something good. Um, you know, I've I've heard about Jehovah's Witnesses before, but you know, you need to talk to my workers when they're on holiday, <laughs> basically saying that he was a distraction. So of course there's always going to be there's never uh one set of uh results. It's always going to depend on a person's uh um, you know, a personal combination of of class, orientation to religion, um, spiritual curiosity, upbringing. Um, And from the witnesses that I spoke to, uh, I was trying to get at, you know, is there a trend of, you know, perhaps low-income Chinese people being more open or people who had, you know, just... uh, just sort of um, become middle class? Are they more likely to be more like, and basically the more I asked this, the more people were just like, no, there's no witnesses were just like, no, there's no trend. It really depends on a person's heart. Even within the same family, you'll have uh, completely different uh, people will always have uh, very different relationships with spirituality because you're talking about, um, yeah, in individual spiritual practice and i think it's interesting that um the actually this is the quote that i end with with Anne, that uh, young professional i spoke about earlier um i mentioned the example of or just generally someone like him i asked her because she was talking a lot about the coloniality of missions language and you know why do people think that Chinese people are uh, are unreached or this you know godless people and then I brought up you know what about the situation where you have like you mentioned in this sort of low trust suspicious environment a stranger a Kenyan man come up and share uh, in this very, hyper personal uh spiritual conversation and what it doesn't make a difference that he is black and he's speaking to asians in a you know in a in a place where there is racial tension um doesn't matter that he himself is working and she sort of thought about it for a minute and what she said was you know people can sense a powerful person um she goes on and says, a Kenyan missionary uh, like like Tieno, he's willing to be rejected. Um, he's even willing to be harmed by the people he's trying to save. And so from her perspective, she says that spirit, that power is what a lot of Chinese people lack.
0: Let's stay with the Chinese side of the equation a little bit longer. And I want to go back to the conversation that I had with Christopher Rhodes. And if you haven't listened to that podcast, it was on July 31st and it was absolutely fascinating. One of the things that Christopher mentioned was the fact that how receptive a lot of the Chinese in places like East Africa were to religion, in part because they come to Africa with a certain set of expectations, and they find that it's lonely, they're isolated, they're very far away from family, the work is very, very hard. We oftentimes overlook the humanity of the people who are there. And so they're in this kind of foreign culture, and anybody who's lived in a foreign culture, at whatever level... It's alienating, and you, you, your instincts don't work anymore because it's hard to move, especially if you don't speak the language and you're. this is the first time you're overseas, which many of these workers have never ventured beyond their province, much less to another continent in different languages and cultures and different races and things like that. So all of a sudden, religion comes into this, and people are very susceptible to it. So tell us a little bit about the profile, again, of the morality and the kind of spiritual, I don't want to call it crisis, but the availability that that they have and how receptive they are to these types of approaches.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And for me, it was an unexpectedly uh, personal angle to the story that didn't occur to me until as, you know, midway through my reporting. Uh, but that is exactly what happened to my parents when they immigrated to the U.S. They immigrated from, uh, they were in Beijing, uh, and then they moved to West Virginia. And when they got there as PhD students, they were reached out to by Christians there and became Christian and have since then been attending regularly, uh, uh, mostly throughout uh, my childhood, Chinese Bible churches. Um, And so I, as I was reporting this, I was thinking very much deeply about the idea of immigrant churches and what it means uh, for someone who is far from home to find uh, open arms, yes, in a context of a new religion, but just open arms from people who speak the same language as them and who come from the same place as them and who walked their path uh, you know, years before. Um, I think there is, so it's less important for me whether or not, a, for example, a Chinese uh, migrant in Nairobi actually is truly embracing the religion, or if they're just trying to find, you know, like, they uh, you know, trying to find, a, you know, a social outlet, a community or a place to you. find people like them. Yeah, yeah. or even networking. Um, I think, yeah, I think for Christians, that's a that is an issue, or that's something that you think about. But for me, it was uh, interesting enough to think about the fact that all around, this is, uh, this is a universal thing. It's not just about uh, Kenya. It's not just about uh, Chinese people in, in Africa. It is a uh, universal um, tendency, a longing.
0: So in your story, you did not use the real names of the Chinese people that you spoke to for their security. And in part because uh, they're in Kenya today, but one day they're going to go back to... China, some of them, and they're going to bring this new religion with them. And as we talked about at the top of the program, uh, Jehovah's Witness in particular may be a religion that the Communist Party doesn't like, even if they don't like religion in general. But did you talk to them about the complexity that they are going to encounter when they come back to China with this belief set and how risky it might be? Did that, did that ever come into, uh, into your discussions with, the, with some of the Chinese?
1: Yeah, that was constantly relevant. Um, the witnesses that I spoke to talked about their Nairobi Chinese congregation, the the Chinese language congregation in the Jehovah's Witnesses in uh, in Kenya, as this sort of uh, airport terminal because most of the Chinese uh, migrants are are just that they're migrants, not immigrants. They don't stay in Kenya. Um, they come, they are exposed to uh, the uh, exposed to the Bible. Some become saved, or as Jehovah's Witnesses call it, um, coming into the truth. And then they need to go home um, to an environment where it is. And I cannot um, overstate this: a real th- threat to safety um, to be to sort of uh, practice this religion in in any open way and so for example um uh daphne butler who is the witness that i uh, that i interviewed in the piece and quoted a couple times she mentioned the story of a um of a chinese couple who was visiting nairobi just to help their son take care of uh, of, of their grandchildren so they were just there sort of which is a very typical <laughs> chinese grandparent role yes. so they were just here um, and then found Jehovah came into the truth, but then it was time for them to go. and so it's this very tenuous uh, thing where they had to um where the witnesses from Nairobi basically were just trying very hard to make sure they had a good uh, spiritual foundation, make sure that they had you know the resources they need. Um, they were able to connect them with other witnesses in. China, but that in itself is also a very tenuous process, because in order to protect the safety of the witnesses there, you want to make sure that the person, you know, going back to China is a serious serious, um, witness and not someone who will end up just uh, endangering the safety of other witnesses there. Sometimes, oftentimes, perhaps Bible studies need to be done over the phone in China. Um, But even that is risky. You don't don't have
0: security on the phone in China either. I mean, that is, if anybody thinks there's any kind of, and it makes me wonder if people on the outside fully understand what's at stake here, because, and and I, I'm just not sure that they do. Uh, Maybe it's just my suspicion because the, the Chinese system now is so comprehensive in its ability to monitor people that it, Mm. it it feels like the only way to practice this faith is in your own, you know, your own Mm. personal space.
1: Yeah. Although I, I, would say that in the case of Jehovah's Witnesses, because of the um, the ability with which the international organization is able to put out um, pretty standardized and regular uh, literature and videos within this within the witness i I guess system within the community um it might be marginally easier than trying to grow spiritually without that because in term i mean they're putting out product like really high production value videos um regularly uh at, at the meetings uh it's a pretty standardized almost every everyone around the world is going through the same lesson um moderated but no preacher uh, everyone gets literature and it has been translated into just countless languages so in terms of 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 that um it might be marginally easier for someone in china to sort of stick with it uh, but of course that's
0: sure well up in the year the article is in kenya chinese rivals are targeted by jehovah's witnesses speaking chinese it's in the south china morning post sunday magazine just go to scmp.com look for april 2 That is uh, April, the month, and then ZHU, and you'll find that. And uh, if you actually then you'll Google that and you will then find April's other writings. Uh, April, if people want to connect with you and to read more of your writing and to follow what you're doing, what's the best way that people can stay in touch with you?
1: Um, You can find me on Twitter at APRZHU. And then from there, yeah, you can find my website and get in contact, but that's where you'll find most of my work.
0: And she does really interesting work. This is not the kind of work and writing and journalism that you're going to see in the New York Times or in the Washington Post or some of the more traditional type of media outlets. There's some, in fact, some of them have been, um, I don't, and I do not say this in a negative way, esoteric in a way that's just like what? I never really thought of that. And mm-hmm. for someone who looks and obsesses over China-Africa media as much as I do, uh, that's actually quite an accomplishment. So, uh, so I really recommend that you check out some of the things that April's doing. Also, once again, if you want to see and stay on top of all of the China Africa news, the best way to do that is to come to our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Uh, we just did an interview with Solon Shadela, who is the leading China Zambia expert in the world on uh, the current kind of deterioration of China's uh, debt crisis in, uh, in Zambia, where there is a real problem. And there's been predictions that There might be a break between China and Zambia, and you'll hear what Solange has to say. And also we talked about why is it that Uganda is, you know, issuing a statement on Hong Kong? that doesn't make any sense we give us some analysis on that as well that's the kind of stuff that you'll find on our on our website and of course in our daily newsletter which we hope that you will take some time to subscribe to uh, not only is it good information it's also supporting uh, independent journalism and a lot of you are very close followers of the program and you want to be connected with what we are doing and this is a great way to do that uh, and to be a part of our community as well so we would love to have you all uh, subscribe at chinaafricaproject.com/subscribe uh, so That'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next time with another show. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter where you can find quobus at Studinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.